Welcome to KYH2O, a podcast about all things water in Kentucky. I'm Carmen Agaritas, an Extension Associate Professor in the Biosystems and Agricultural Engineering Department at the University of Kentucky. And I'm Amanda Gumbert, an Extension Specialist for Water Quality with the University of Kentucky Cooperative Extension Service. Join us as we get our feet wet exploring Kentucky's water resources. Last episode, we talked a lot about the salamanders that Carmen saw on her field trip, and we feel like they are so important that we're going to do a second episode about salamanders. Carmen, why do you think salamanders are so important? You know, this was really my first time going out and sampling salamanders. I hadn't uh, given them a whole lot of thought. I'd heard other people talk about how diverse or eastern Kentucky and so forth was to having salamander habitat. I think part of it is their their part in the food chain system. I learned a lot about uh, some of the macroinvertebrates that they were eating. Um, and I assume that they're also a good food source for higher order organisms as well. But for me, it was really the first time actually picking up rocks and intentionally looking for salamanders and, and capturing them and actually holding them in my hand. That was a first for me. And it was, it was really exciting. And it made me appreciate how many there are, at least in a really healthy environment that I didn't know were around. He, so he brought over a little salamander that uh, had some, some black lines across its back and it was yellowish in color and that's called a two-line salamander. And that's actually part of a group of salamanders that they lack lungs, okay? So they're called lungless salamanders. They breathe entirely through their skin. So, and so we found the two-line salamander was what we sampled, but Steve talked about a lot of other salamanders and. I'm not really familiar with many of them except for having heard about the hellbender. I mean, we'd see a few species that occur throughout Kentucky, but we actually, in the eastern part of the state, where it's more rugged, more mountainous, we have, have very high diversity of salamanders. So in a, a intermittent stream like this, there might be seven, eight, nine different species of salamanders that we could come across. And those lungless salamanders that I was talking about are especially diverse in the eastern part of the state with kind of the, the cooler mountains and the, and the, 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 the spring-fed streams and those systems, they seem to do, do really well. Now, as you go to the western part of the state, it's really interesting. We have more wetlands and more swamps, so we have salamanders that will use those types of environment to, to reproduce. And um, we have a really cool salamander in the western part of the state called a, a three-toed amphiuma, which is a really long, you know, up to two and a half feet, maybe three feet long salamander that's eel-like in appearance. It has lit legs, but they're pathetically small. They're little and, and tiny, so you have to look very closely to see them. And so they're, they're the longest sal one of the longest salamanders in the United States. And then in our eastern mountains, we have uh, what's called a hellbender, which is a large, fully aquatic salamander that has all these fleshy folds of skin that run across its body. And they can get a couple feet in length, and, um, and they're really neat salamanders. The, the adults, or the, the males, will actually guard the nests and live under these rocks, and they can get pretty, pretty old, 20, 30 years in age. Um, so they're really neat, neat animals. Both of those species, the amphiuma and the hellbender, we can find in Kentucky. So I have had a little bit of experience with salamanders. I'm kind of fascinated by them, especially the red-spotted newt. It has a really interesting life cycle. Um, adults are aquatic, so they have a, a tail that if you, if you find them in, in a wetland or a, 
you know, in some slow moving streams, you'll, you'll notice their tails are adapted for moving through the water. So it's pretty obvious they spend a lot of time in the water. And then um, I believe they lay their eggs in the water also, but then the, the juveniles spend time on the landscape, and so they're terrestrial. And they're really obvious to see when you're out you know, hiking or, or walking on a trail, and you might find them on a ridge or all over in the woods. Um, they're bright orange with these really bright spots, and they're probably maybe about three inches long. And it's pretty obvious when you see them, you know, they are out there shouting with their orange color, do not eat me, I taste really bad. Um, So I just find them really fascinating that the adults are aquatic and the juveniles are, um, are terrestrial, and then they go back into that aquatic phase, you know, as an adult. So as that juvenile grows into adulthood, and the the adults are not anywhere close to being as brightly colored as the terrestrial phase, and their skin is even different. So that juvenile phase has more of a, a rough, nearly a lizard-like feel to the skin, but the adults have that smooth, um, you know, skin that you described um, on the salamanders that you were catching. And they're like a dark green um, color. Their, their red spots, however, are the same. So they maintain that red spot on those or red spots on their backs. Um, so I find them pretty fascinating. So what you told me, and, I, and this maybe was an idea spinning in the back of my head while I was out there with Steve, but really hearing you say it again was, I was focused so much on the stream, and that was where we were really at, is turning over the rocks and looking under the leaves. But when you're talking about how they spend so much of their lives going all the way up to the ridge tops, it really gives me a sense of, wow, they have a pretty big habitat for such a small creature. And not just the things that we do that impact the water by the stream, but everything that also impacts the land where they may be living at through other different phases of life is really kind of critical. Yeah, it really is. And again, we talk a lot about water quality on this podcast, and really that's our focus. But it's really hard to separate water quality and other ecosystem pieces and parts, and especially with habitat for animals like salamanders that are so influenced and affected by alterations in the habitat. And I think it's just, just knowing how big some habitat requirements are for some, I mean, this salamander, they're tiny little things, and how big a area they a big an area they have to have to live in. So you all were looking at the stream. Did you look at all outside the stream for salamanders? We did not. We stayed in the water, um, I think largely because we were looking at the eggs and seeing how, you know, how many eggs could we find and where were we going to find them at and could we find any salamanders in the water? And we did not venture up into uh, the forested area to kind of go look for them as well. We, we stayed in the water where we thought we were going to have the best chance of actually catching some. I think Steve says something about the eggs. Let's listen to what Steve has to say about the importance of eggs and where we might find them. Yeah, so we mentioned that some breed in, in ponds and wetlands. So they'll go to those sites and they'll deposit their eggs there. And you'll see these big globular egg masses that maybe contain 500 or 600 individual eggs in them and then there's some salamanders that actually lay their eggs on land that never use the aquatic environment yeah and and those are part of that group again of the lungless salamanders and these are completely terrestrial um, salamanders a good example of that is we have in Kentucky it's called a slimy salamander and it's a, a salamander maybe three inches long um, black in color with tiny little white flecks 
and um, these guys are fully terrestrial. So they'll mate on land, they'll deposit a little grape-like cluster of eggs in a humid environment, maybe under a rock or under a log. Um, and then eventually those eggs will hatch out and just be little miniature versions of the adults. So they bypass that larval stage entirely. So you all found some salamander eggs, and Steve mentions that salamanders can lay as many as 500 to 600 eggs. I was amazed at how many eggs were on a rock. And so we would pick it over, and he would look at me, and he'd say, one salamander probably laid all those eggs. And then as a mother, I thought, wow, <laughs> that's a lot of eggs. I'm glad you said that because I thought we're both moms, and that, that's a lot of eggs. It was a lot of eggs, and and it was really neat too. They they to me they reminded me of a teardrop and how they were shaped. Um, they were very gelatinous, so you could kind of see that, and you could also see the little tiny salamander inside uh, the egg actually moving around. So the ones that we found on the rock, Steve thought were really close to hatching, and so we he actually opened one up, and we could see the little tiny salamander um, floating around. And so it was a really neat oh, experience. That sounds cool. So they were clear eggs then with like a dark dot or a dark little squiggle inside? Yeah, they was... were they were clear. Um, and then you could see the little tiny salamander. At least these had developed enough so that you could see that little baby salamander inside wiggling around. Uh, as, as, and he thought they were just a few days from probably hatching or opening up. Oh, that's pretty exciting. So that reminds me... I went out with my husband a long time ago. He is very interested in um, in salamanders and frogs and lizards, and he really does like snakes too. And so I try to skip the, the snake hunting trips. But um, we were looking at just a road rut. On We had stopped along the road. Um, we were out, you know, on, on some t- type of field work for him, and there was a, a, a log, old logging road, and there was a road rut beside it which had filled up with water from spring rain, and there were eggs in it. And we had to walk through that area uh, and some other kind of puddled areas where these amphibians had, you know, taken advantage of the habitat, and to and that it was full of eggs, and it was just so fascinating. But I found myself having to get from one side of the puddle to the other side of the puddle to get back in the vehicle, and... I will never forget this. It was, it was, I had to step through some of it to get, you know, to where I needed to go. And it disrupted the habitat. And it was just one single step to get to where I needed to go. And it's just really been an impactful memory, you know, for me and in my life to remind me of how sensitive habitats are. Um, And maybe this is why the salamander mama you know, lays 500 or 600 eggs because... Only if you were going to make it. Yeah, right. You know, it's just kind of a... um, It helps us to understand how sensitive habitats are to human activity. Yeah, and I think part of it, too, is just being in the stream. I'm sure uh, fish probably find some of the salamander eggs delicious. Uh, So maybe part of the reason, you know, maybe you saw so many in a, a rut on the side of the road where you didn't have fish, there were... But there were still an oppressive amount I, I was surprised at how many eggs there were out there. You just mentioned that maybe fish were eating some of the eggs. I think Steve talks about what salamanders eat. So let's listen to what Steve has to say. So salamanders are completely carnivorous, meaning they only eat other animals, okay? And they kind of eat whatever they can fit in their mouth. 
So we have some salamanders, like that little guy who's only inch long, will, will eat tiny little invertebrates within the stream. But then we have other salamanders that can get maybe four or five inches long, even as larvae. And there's one here called a spring salamander, and they really actually like to eat other salamanders. Really? Yeah, so, so but like um, a lot of amphibians, whatever they can fit in their mouth, they're going to try to eat. Carmen, we are... I think as adults, humans, we're pretty familiar with metamorphosis in terms of the life cycle of a butterfly. That's what I always think about, and probably that's what we learned in elementary school. Um, when we learned metamorphosis, we learned about how a butterfly transforms from a caterpillar. So I think salamanders also have some sort of metamorphosis. They do. My understanding from Steve is they have what we call incomplete metamorphosis. So with the butterfly, you would see you have an egg and then it develops um, all the way through the caterpillar, it develops this uh, crystallis, and then you have the butterfly. So you have those kind of four stages. With the salamander, we were talking about like with the egg, it was that gelatinous egg, you could actually see the salamander inside and it looked a little bit like it's adult. It looked more like that adult phase as opposed to if you think of a caterpillar, it looks nothing really like the butterfly it becomes. So with this, uh, my understanding is it has more of an incomplete metamorphosis where that egg becomes kind of almost like a, uh, when you talked about juvenile, almost like a smaller version of itself before it really then grows and maybe transforms a bit more, uh, whether it be color, potentially mouse shape or something like that to its adult phase. So that's something we could put more information on on the website to help people understand about incomplete metamorphosis. So Dr. Price is, is very good about giving us information um, to help pass on. And Dr. Price also has his own lab website and Facebook page. So we can also um, encourage folks to go there and look for information. Yeah, he goes under Price Labs, and so there's a there's a great Facebook page you can look at. He also has web pages and information about that. Um, Steve is is he's a wealth of information when it comes to salamanders. I did not know there was so much information out there about salamanders. We've mentioned some of the impact of humans on salamanders, and. You know, one of the things I think about is is really our how we influence habitat. So as a stream scientist, and now that you know a lot more about salamanders, what are some things that we could do that we could protect habitat for salamanders? For me, besides just protecting, I think, the, the water quality of a stream, which is very important, I think, what they live into, um, is the streamside area, so that riparian buffer but also just the watershed in general. I think as a, a stream scientist, I fo focus not just on what the stream is, but the watershed itself, because it all feeds into it. Learning what I did on this field visit and in talking with you makes me think about what could I do to better habitat, either within the watershed or either in aspects like uh, maybe small shallow pools next to the stream that the salamanders could go into. Or could we put uh, logs along the banks that they might be able to hide into and how important leaf litter is? Things that when we design streams, we focus so much, I think, a lot of times on the hydrology of it. Sometimes we forget those nice little features that really improve the habitat that don't take a lot more effort to put in place. Yeah, I think sometimes as stream scientists, we just think, well, we'll build the habitat and then the wildlife will populate it. And sometimes they might need a little more help than, than, you know, just building them a brand new home that they've never seen before. Right. Or even things like leaf litter, which you're not going to have immediately after you do a restoration project 
maybe that's something we need to spend a lot more time thinking about. How do we get leaf litter in, leaf litter in uh, before the trees really get big? And I think about our listeners who might not have access to help with the kind of projects that we get to work on. You know, just learning about the life cycle of a salamander is pretty fascinating. And I think the more that we learn about the pieces and parts of our ecosystem, the more we understand how all the pieces and parts work together to provide us all the things that we enjoy um, in nature. Yeah, it's uh, as speaking as an engineer for me, it's it's really helpful to learn so much about the biology and why things work because it makes much better designs in the end. We have, I think, a lot of times the same goals to protect to preserve, but it helps so much getting different perspectives and understanding what's important to the salamander, maybe what's important to a macroinvertebrate. If I don't know that, then how can you really design a habitat for them? Well, we will continue this conversation. We're going to move it into the lab at a later date and learn about what Dr. Steve Price keeps on campus at the University of Kentucky in the Price Lab. You've been listening to Carmen Agaritas and Amanda Gumbert. Learn more about water at uky.edu forward slash BAE forward slash KYH2O. Subscribe to hear all episodes of KYH2O.